Uh, this morning, we'll be continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians, making our way to 1 Corinthians 16, being verses 1 through 4 this morning. Now, see, one of the benefits of expository preaching or, or sequential preaching is that as we go through a book of the Bible, that it causes us to address a wide variety of issues that arise from the text. And we've certainly seen that during our time in 1 Corinthians, haven't we? That we've addressed matters of um, church uh, discipline, division in the church. We've addressed marriage, singleness, divorce. We've looked at the Lord's Supper, uh, the roles of men and women in the church, the work and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We've looked at baptism of the dead. And the list goes on and on, the different things we've addressed during our time in 1 Corinthians. And this morning, we're getting towards the end of the letter to the Corinthian church by Paul. And before we get to Paul's final instructions and some uh, final remarks regarding his travel, we have verses 1 through 4. In verses 1 through 4, we have where Paul is providing some final instructions on another particular matter in regards to a collection. So if you're there in 1 Corinthians 16, I'll read for us verses 1 through 4, and then we'll dive into the text and examine the various aspects of it. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 says this, 1 through 4, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So as we get to this passage here, Paul is providing some instructions to the Corinthian church in the matter of a collection. Now, to understand who this collection is for, we have to look over to 2 Corinthians, and we see where Paul is encouraging this collection to be taken up to be provided to the church in Jerusalem. And it's not just that Corinth is the one that has taken up this collection, but Paul talks about a variety of other churches as well. That we see this collection is being taken up in the churches of Galatia, Elsewhere, we see it's in the churches of Macedonia, the churches of Achaia. That's the province that Corinth is in. And so Paul is coordinating a collection among all these various churches for the church in Jerusalem. Because historians say during this time, uh, there was a great famine occurring throughout Judea. And at this time, there was a need for some external aid to provide relief to the saints there because of their poor, because of their need. And so Paul is coordinating this gift among the various churches Then we see over in Romans where it talks about Paul bringing this collection to the church in Jerusalem. In Romans 15, verses 20 through 26, it says this, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have room, any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped in my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So again, we see here where Paul is bringing this collection to the church in Jerusalem. Now, this passage we're looking at in in, in 1 Corinthians 16, it's only four short verses, but there's actually a whole lot that's packed into these four short verses. This morning, we're looking at three main points. Three main precepts that we can find in this text that undergird much of our doctrine and our practice as a church, specifically here as a church at Alpine. So if you're taking notes, here's a brief outline we're going to be going this morning. We'll be looking at the cooperative nature of the churches. 
We're going to be looking at the Lord's Day or our observance of the Lord's Day. And thirdly, we're going to be looking at giving towards kingdom work. So if you're taking notes, that gives you a brief outline this morning. Cooperation, the Lord's Day, and then giving as well. So the first thing we see in this passage is a basis for the cooperative nature of churches, our cooperative practices. As Kevin mentioned a few weeks ago, that as believers, we are all theologians. We are all theologians. We may not have a a fancy degree or a nice library, but we as believers should be designed to grow in our knowledge of God. That's part of what we even say it here at Alpine. We have on our back walls to know him and to make him known, to grow in our knowledge of God and the things of God. That's theology. Now, underneath theology, there's a whole different or a whole lot of different subcategories. You have uh, proper or, or theology proper. That's the study specifically of God, uh, his persons, his work, his nature. There's Christology. That's the study of Christ and his person, his work. There's eschatology. That's a fan favorite of many. It's the study of the end times. And the list goes on and on, the different subcategories of theology. And one of the ones that I uh, enjoy most looking at is ecclesiology. And ecclesiology is the study of the church, its work and its purpose. And one aspect of the church is how the church relates to one another or how our external relationships should be. If you've been through our membership orientation process, you know that we go through and examine the various convictions uh, that we have from Scripture that undergird our doctrine and our practice. And as it comes to the matter of external relationships, as a church, this is part of what we confess, is that the church is autonomous under the lordship of Jesus Christ, not so to the control of any other ecclesiastical body. Now, this is in line with historic Baptist doctrine, that we confess the local church is not subject to the control, the authority of any external person or any external group. Now, this is in contrast to churches that follow more of an Episcopalian model. In those churches, they believe the local congregation is ultimately subject to the authority of some external uh, person, typically a bishop or an archbishop. In other words, the local body is subject to the authority of an external body. We see this most prevalent in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Eastern Orthodox, and also in some Anglican churches. This is also in contrast to churches that follow more of a Presbyterian model. It's similar in the respect that there is an external uh, body that is having a top-down authority, but instead of being an external person, it's an external group or an assembly. We see this most prominent in Presbyterian or in Dutch Reformed churches and some others as well. But in line with Baptist doctrine, we hold to a congregational model. And with a congregational model of, of church governance, we believe that the ultimate authority rests with the internal body, not an external body. When I speak of authority, I'm referring to human authority, not divine authority. We recognize and confess that each local church is subject to the authority of its own congregation, but all of that is in subjection to the divine authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he alone is our supreme authority in the life of the church. Nonetheless, because of this internal authority instead of external authority, we believe in the autonomy of the local church. Now, what does all of that or any of that have to do with 1 Corinthians 16? That's a lot of different words. What does it have to do with this particular text here? It's helpful for us to understand church autonomy because it informs our understanding of church cooperation. When we talk about cooperation, it's important to understand church autonomy first. 
Autonomy does not mean isolation. As churches, we voluntarily choose to cooperate together with other like-minded churches and ministries for the advancement of the kingdom. This is based in part on what we see in 1 Corinthians 16. We see the Corinthian church cooperating with other churches to support the church in Jerusalem. And we're looking at this passage here in 1 Corinthians 16. It's also helpful to look forward to 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9 really is a sequel of sorts to this particular passage as Paul is addressing, again, the matter of a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. If you're turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 9, which will be on the screen as well, 2 Corinthians 9, I'll read this passage for us. Now, excuse me. Now, this passage is much longer than our four verses in 1 Corinthians, but it's helpful to understand this so that it gives some context into 1 Corinthians 16. 2 Corinthians 9 says this, Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. Send that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them, but I am seeing the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so you may be ready as I say to you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we will be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gifts that you had promised so be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whosoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whosoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The reason why this passage provides some helpful context to us is we see in this passage where while Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to give aid to the church in Jerusalem, he is not requiring that they give. He's not forcing them to give. It says in the text that it's to be given willingly, not as an exaction. It's not to be given reluctantly or under compulsion. Paul is not demanding that they support the church in Jerusalem, albeit he is certainly encouraging it, if not expecting that they will give, provide aid to them. See, by supplying the needs of the church in Jerusalem, the Corinthians are helping the Jerusalem church fulfill their mission to make Christ known. That mission was their mission. That mission is also our mission, is to make Christ known. Now, earlier we looked at our confession. As, as a body here at Alpine, we talked about our belief in the autonomy of the local church, but I didn't read the rest of that statement. See, the rest of the statement goes on to say this. Nonetheless, 
The church recognizes and sustains the obligation of mutual counsel and cooperation, which are common among other churches. Insofar as it's practical, this church will voluntarily cooperate with and support the local association of Southern Baptist churches, the Louisiana Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, and other compatible associations or networks. See, following the the example of the, the Corinthian church there, we see that we are supporting the work being done by other churches down the road and around the globe. Friends, we are not competing enemies. We are cooperating embassies. We cooperate with one another because we have the same mission. That is the Great Commission. Now, the primary way that we do this here at Alpine is when we give through the cooperative program. Now, if you're not familiar with the cooperative program, it's a way that many churches pool our resources together. About two-thirds of that is given to the Louisiana Baptist Convention for work done by them and their agencies within our state. The remainder is sent on to the Southern Baptist Convention for work being done by it and its agencies around North America and around the world. You'll hear the North American Mission Board, the International Mission Board. That's what we're giving towards through the cooperative program. And what they're doing is, in turn, they're supplying the needs of the churches around our state, around the world, and this is being done on behalf of churches that have pulled our resources together to give to this particular thing. But we are under no obligation to give towards, support those conventions. We're under no obligation to support these conventions, nor do these conventions have any authority into the life of this local body or any other local bodies. But when we give through the cooperative program, that is a tangible way that we follow the precepts we see in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians regarding the cooperative nature of churches. This week, this afternoon, as we leave here, some things to consider in light of our cooperative nature as churches. Two questions for you. How do you view other like-minded churches in our area and around the world? Do you view them as competitors? Or do you view them as co-laborers in the gospel? How can you, how can we as a church cooperate with other like-minded churches in our area, around our state, around North America, and around the world for the advancement of God's kingdom? Ponder these throughout the week. The second thing we see in our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 16 is we see the basis for our practice of gathering together on the Lord's day. You turn back to 1 Corinthians 16. It says this on verse 2. On the first day of every week, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so there be no collecting when I come. Now, this reference to the first day of every week is the day following the Sabbath, which, of course, is the seventh day. And we recognize the Sabbath is observed on our calendar Saturday, hence making Sunday the first day of the week that we're expected to gather. And so when Paul is addressing the Corinthian church in this passage, there's an expectation that the churches will be gathered together on Sunday, on the first day of the week. This is confirmed in other passages of Scripture like Acts 20. And then by the end of the first century, we see where it's clear the early church has a practice of gathering on the first day. We see where the Apostle John references the Lord's Day, being called up in the Lord's Day. Furthermore, there's extra biblical historical records that indicate and support that the local church has gathered on the first day of the week for centuries. So why is it that there's an expectation that the local church is going to gather on the first day of each week? 
It is to remember and to celebrate Christ's resurrection. Consider the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, 1 through 10. It says this, Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he, as he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from there, from the tomb, with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This account is repeated in each of the Gospels. The church gathered on the first day of the week to remember and to celebrate Christ's resurrection because the resurrection changes everything. Remember, John, we went through our study in, in chapter 15. John reminded us of the importance of the resurrection. <clears throat> that if there's no resurrection, we have no hope. Our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We remain in our sin and under God's condemnation. But because Christ rose, we too shall rise. Because Christ lives, we too shall live. Scripture tells us there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. Isn't it a good thing that we gather each week to remind ourselves of this, to remind ourselves of the hope of the resurrection? It's a good thing that we not only remind ourselves, we also celebrate the resurrection as we look forward to what is to come. Now, as we're addressing the observance of the Lord's Day, it's important that we don't view the Lord's Day as some new Sabbath or as a substitute for the Sabbath. <clears throat> we, don't view, we don't see in Scripture where the observance of the Sabbath was shifted from Saturday to Sunday. Instead, uh, we see where this shift really was more of a historical occurrence in the 4th century with Constantine, where he made a decree throughout the whole Roman Empire to have Sunday as a day of rest. What we do see in Scripture is that the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ. In Colossians 2, 16 and 17, it says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Like many of the other ceremonial laws of the Israelites, these were types and shadows that pointed forward towards Christ. Christ fulfilled the Sabbath. Now, does this mean that we shouldn't observe the Sabbath or that people are wrong for observing that? By no means. So you consider Romans 14, 4 and 5. <clears throat> it says this, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes today observes it in honor of the Lord. Paul appears to be teaching this early church that while observance of the Sabbath isn't a command, it certainly can be a good and an honorable thing to do. Paul himself continues to observe the Sabbath. Wisdom in creation itself seems to support the practice of observing a day of rest. And of course, this day of rest certainly can coincide with our observance of the Lord's day, but it's important that we don't confuse the two as synonymous. While we may enjoy a day of rest in the Lord's day, 
more importantly, we remember and we celebrate Christ's resurrection as we gather together on Sundays. Now, there's another important aspect of this observance of the Lord's Day, is that it is meant to be observed in community, not in isolation. So recall, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, to the gathered body of believers there. Recall what Paul said in the 1 Corinthians 1-2. In his introduction, he says this, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. <clears throat> There's an expectation that the saints of God would gather together on the Lord's day. The author, the author of Hebrews echoes the sentiment. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, it says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love one another in good works, not neglecting to meet as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. How is it that we can stir up one another if we are not among one another? That's part of what it means to be part of the local body of Christ. Jonathan Liebman writes in his book, Rediscover Church, that a Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. As believers, it should be a high priority for us to regularly and physically gather together on the Lord's day with other believers in observance and remembrance of his resurrection. As we observe the Lord's day every Sunday, as we gather together corporately, <coughs> let us continuously remind ourselves of the resurrection and celebrate the hope that we have now in Christ Jesus. For those who are not in Christ, you too can have this hope if you turn to him in repentance and, sake, repentance and faith, that if you forsake your sin and you follow after him, then you shall be saved. Scripture tells that all who call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. Confess your sin to him. He is faithful and he is just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. The third thing we see in this, in this passage is the practice of giving for kingdom work. Giving towards kingdom work. Now, I confess, this is a topic that I talk a lot about. In my role with the Louisiana Baptist Foundation, I'm regularly going around and visiting with churches around the state, talking with pastors and encouraging them to consider ways that they can encourage their members to give to that local church. But unfortunately, there are many pastors who um, are hesitant to speak about giving. And if we're being honest, there's a lot of believers that are reluctant to hear about giving. <coughs> Recall what Paul echoed in 2 Corinthians 9, there is an expectation that the believers will or they should give. And while it's true that believers may give their time and give their talents towards kingdom work, there's no escaping the reality that we should be giving with our finances as well. We can't escape that reality. Now to say that we should give doesn't mean that God needs our gifts. Consider what is written in 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29, 9 through 16, it says this. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. <coughs> For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. 
Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able to thus offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days in the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for the building of your house, for your holy name, comes from your hand, and is all your own. In this account, we see where David recognized while the people were giving towards the building of the temple, that everything they were giving ultimately came from God. This is because God owns everything, and that everything we have has been given to us by God. The very funds that we give, God has given to us. The very jobs that we work to generate those funds, God has given those to us. The skills we have to perform those jobs, God has given all of that to us. Everything we have comes from God. We don't need, or we don't give out of some need. God doesn't need our gifts. Also, we shouldn't give based off some sense of, of obligation. Now, many Christians believe that we are required to give 10% of our income, a tithe. <clears throat> and this certainly has its roots in the practice of the Israelites. The Old, Testament commanded, uh, the Old Testament commanded that the Israelites were to pay a tithe of their income, a tenth of their income, to support the Levites. And it wasn't just one tithe, but it was many tithes that, that equaled well over 20% of their annual income. And this was in addition to the temple taxes and also the various other offerings that they were to provide. And we even see examples of a tithe being given even before the law was inaugurated. And we don't see anything in Scripture where Jesus instructs us not to give a tithe. But based on this, or based on this, many Christians believe it is our responsibility to give 10% of our income. However, notably missing is that in the various instructions we see in giving of the New Testament, including our passage here this morning, that there is no reference to a tithe being given. Instead, we see instructions to give proportionately, to give in proportion to our means. See, giving a tithe is certainly a wise practice. However, it shouldn't be viewed as a mandate. For some, giving 10% of their income will be of such a burden that it would cause them to be unfaithful in other areas. There are some who have given away so much that they have neglected to provide their own family's basic needs, which we see Scripture commands, or to be unfaithful in other obligations they have. Giving in such a way is not honoring to God. For others, giving 10% of their income is of such insignificance that it never causes them to realize their dependence upon God for that very income that they've received. They can pride themselves in a sense of, of duty to God, of feeling a sense of duty to God, all the while those who are in need uh, go unassisted. So instead of giving a mandatory 10%, we give in proportion to our means. Recall what verse 2 says, that Paul instructs them to give as he may prosper. Other translations render this as <clears throat> giving giving based off of uh, in keeping with his income or keeping with how he is prospering. The idea being conveyed here is that everyone is going to give differently. For those whom God has given less, they will give less. For those whom God has given more, they will give more. For those who have, for the same person have the same income, it's likely that the person who has 
no spouse, has no children, no obligations, will likely be able to give more than a person who is married and has multiple children and multiple obligations. They will give based off of their means in proportion to what they have. Instead of reluctantly giving based off of need or based off of obligation, we voluntarily give out of joy. Consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Or consider 1 Chronicles 29, 9. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. We see in these passages a call to give joyfully, a call to give cheerfully. We give joyfully now because we know what will come. We give joyfully now in light of knowing what is to come. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul tells us that whosoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. In other words, we give generously, we can expect a plentiful result. Now, this passage is not supporting some sense of prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is that you, if you give more, the more you give, the more you will be blessed. Or if you're feeling under some kind of suffering or oppression in some way, it's because you're not giving enough. That is false. That is not what Paul is referring to here. What Paul has in mind here is the spiritual reality that when we sow generously, we will also reap bountifully in terms of bearing fruit for God's kingdom. Not bearing fruit for our own kingdoms, but bearing fruit for God's kingdom. We see that later on in verse 11. The true fruit to be produced in our joyful giving is glory being rendered unto God. When the church in Jerusalem received their aid from the Corinthian church, what did it cause them to do in ultimate? It caused them to glorify God, to give thanks to him. What greater thing is there than to result in the glory being given to God? Is that not our chief end of man? Just to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We don't give to get. We give to glorify. And our giving should be voluntary. We shouldn't give reluctantly or out of fear or out of uh, reluctance. We no one should have to guilt trip us or manipulate us into giving. Generosity should be the natural overflow of the new heart that we've been given by our generous God. We give joyfully now, voluntarily now, because we know it ultimately results in glory being given to God. And while we don't have enough time to sufficiently delve into this this morning, our giving should primarily be through the local church. That doesn't mean that it's wrong to give to other churches and other ministries or non-ministry organizations, but we shouldn't do so in lieu of the local church, this local body of baptized believers. <coughs> when we give through the local church, we're not only supporting the teaching ministry as Scripture requires, but we as believers are able to pull our resources together for kingdom work. Recall the ultimate result of the Corinthians' giving was to bring glory to God. This was done through the local church in Corinth. It was done through the local churches of Galatia, through the local churches of Macedonia, through the local churches of Achaia. So too it should be through us, through the local body, should be our primary way that we give. Giving is not only for God's glory, but giving is also for our good. For our passage this morning, I want to leave us with four practical considerations. Four considerations. First, 
our giving should be periodic. We see in this passage, there's an expectation that there'll be regularity in our giving. Whether that's quarterly, monthly, weekly, are we regular and consistent in our giving? Second, our giving should be planned. The Corinthians were to set aside something each week for giving. This idea of regularly setting something aside comes with it, a sense of deliberateness or planning. It's not so that she gets to have to happen occasionally or by happenstance. Spontaneity doesn't necessarily mean sincerity. That's not to discourage spontaneous giving, but it means it should be the exception, not the norm. We should be planned. We should be planning the way in which we are to give. We should be intentional and deliberate in the way that we bring our gifts. Along with this idea of planning to give, through the ways, considering the various ways in which we can give. See, Proverbs 3.9 tells us that we can give not only from the first fruit of our produce, but also from our wealth. In other words, we plan to give not only from our income, but also from our assets, from our savings, retirement, stocks, the list goes on. This also includes our estates as well. Do we have a plan to give from our estates when we pass? Third, giving should be personal. See, in this passage, we see where Paul makes it personal by specifically addressing each of you. We shouldn't give, shouldn't worry about how much someone else gives or how little someone else gives. We should not give um, or rely on giving just for those wealthy or just for those who have no obligations. The call is for all. All of us have the same responsibility. Fourth, our giving should be proportionate. Am I giving so little that it never causes me to reflect on my dependence on God for those very funds? Or am I giving so much that it is damaging my faithfulness in other parts of life? Churches, we gather together on the Lord's Day in cooperation with other faithful churches around our community and around the world. Let us continue to be generous in our giving towards the advancement of the kingdom all of which should be for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our God, our Father, we give you thanks for all that you have given to us. God, we recognize that everything we have has come from you. God, I pray that as we go about our days that we would live our lives in light of the fact that we are stewards of your resources not only our time and our talents, but also our treasures. God, may we honor you in the way that we cooperate with others. May we honor you as we have come together each week to worship you. And we honor you in the way that we give as well. We pray these things to you, Father, in the name of your Son, the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.